Hey everyone, Matt here. Welcome to War Machine, the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. The episode you're about to hear is a conversation between Justin Pearl and avant-garde composer Delvin Case that centers on Delvin's piece called The Binding of Isaac, according to the Eloist, uh, which is a solo cantata based on Genesis 22. Listeners of the show will know that we like to start by setting the mood. That usually means something you know, audibly reflective, ambient, uh, thematically relevant, and so on. Something to preview what's coming. Uh, what I don't think many people know about, it's not something I talk a lot about, it's usually not relevant, uh, but I'm a musician, I'm a drummer and percussionist, grew up surrounded by classical and concert music. In fact, it was something that for a while I considered pursuing. In the end, I decided I really wasn't interested in doing the whole struggling musician thing, um, probably for similar reasons why I haven't pursued an academic career. Namely, there's no money in it. <laughs> um, anyway, I come from a very musical background. Most everyone in my immediate family are musicians of one kind or another. Uh, a few of them even play professionally full time. The reason I'm mentioning this now, um, I, I can't remember anymore who said it to me, but um, I guess I must have first heard it when I was 10 or 12, when I had begun learning music. But whoever said it, uh, it stuck with me for whatever reason. Um, and that is simply, music begins and ends in silence. Uh, silence is an important theme in this conversation, as you'll hear. Uh, it gets articulated in a number of important ways one of which actually poses a problem for what I just said. The point is, it didn't seem right for me to introduce a conversation on music with a lot of extra noise. So, hence the unaccompanied intro. This is a fantastic conversation that touches on a lot of things that I'm interested in, uh, and it seemed, I don't know, sort of performative uh, in the way that it moved along the contours of the musical piece, sort of doubled up or reflected the movement of the music. Uh, so, yeah, this is one of my favorite conversations we've put out to date, uh, and I'm very pleased to say I had absolutely nothing to do with it. If anyone would like to hear the piece before the conversation, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, otherwise, just hang till the end, uh, and you'll, you'll hear it then. Check out our Patreon to learn more about our upcoming seminars. The link's in the show notes. Thanks to Delvin, we'll link to his stuff as well. Thanks, Justin, for putting this all together, and thank you for listening. All right, here is Justin Pearl with Delvin Case. Well, in terms of ethics, the biggest thing I'm wrestling with right now is that Blue Apron keeps sending me opportunities to get all these meals for, like, free. And they know that it's one per household and they know my address, but between my wife and me and our various emails, they keep coming back to us. <laughs> at point, I feel like it's ethical just to say, sure, I'll have another 12 weeks. Yep. Like <laughs> 90% off. I feel like at that point, like, you know, I don't know where that fits into the tradition of ethics, but you know, at a certain point, you don't notice you're sending those boxes to the same household. That's on you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, um, I always like jokingly, like in like like Twitter bios and stuff. I always refer to myself as a trash ethicist, um, uh, and it's because these are the sorts of questions I'm just like, eh, it's fine. It's a corporation. I don't care. <laughs> just take their money. <laughs> I, like, 
I, you know, and what Laura says, my wife is like, you know, this means that the actual cost to them is actually 90% off. Yep. You know, yep. that, has, that has been the ethical thing on my mind uh, recently. Uh, you know, and I feel like, is there an ethical exception for incompetence on the part of the person doing the ethics? <laughs> I suppose you could turn this to the Old Testament God right away. Uh, <laughs> you lose respect for the guy that smites the Amalekites. <laughs> well, speaking of Abraham and Isaac, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's a question. Like, I mean, should Abraham have done it? 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 And it came to pass that Elohim gave Abraham a test and said unto him, Welcome, everyone. Uh, I have the special privilege today of being joined by Dr. Del Case, uh, Dr. Delvin Case, uh, who was um, actually a professor of mine back in undergrad days. Uh, You were, and and this is probably not a huge surprise, uh, my favorite undergrad professor, um, the uh, leader of our gospel choir, um, as we as we traveled the East Coast uh, and and got all of those uh, Nazarene churches um, shaken and all of that, uh, it is uh, just an absolute pleasure to get a chance to catch up with you today. Uh, it's great to be here. It's so nice to reconnect after many years. Uh, love the stuff you've been doing. Uh, uh, you know the writing you've been doing and the, the teaching you shared with me. Some of your syllabi, I believe, and you've been an inspiration for me as someone who has been inter- interested in in the intersections of of faith and religion and music for a long time, but only recently really diving into more scholarship. So you're, you're way ahead of me on that. And it's great to, it's great to have a chance to learn from you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we, uh, we brought you in today uh, because you somewhat recently, so it was about a year ago, right? You premiered um, a new piece called the binding of Isaac, according to the Eloist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we wanted to talk to you a bit about that, but before we get into the piece, we always like to, to get a little biographical and get to know people a little bit. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your, uh, your musical and spiritual journey and how those have been sort of tangled together. Sure thing. Well, you, you mentioned that I premiered a piece, so I, you know, this, um, the piece we'll be talking about today, it's a musical composition and, you know, that's my training is, in, as, is as a classical music composer. And so I've done a lot of composing of sacred music, but usually sacred music that is intended for the concert hall rather than the church, uh, because it's intended to sort of interrogate, provoke, uh, um, uh, and, and, and function, function oftentimes as a springboard for conversation about faith rather than function as sort of like music for worship. So just to clarify, that's, that's the work of mine that we'll be looking at is an actual musical composition. Um, so yeah, so I um, my, you know, I think for me, uh, music and and faith in the church have always been intertwined uh, for, because um, I've always had a really big ego, 
And um, my, the, the, probably the most important early memory I had is when I was staying a solo in church, the Catholic church I was growing, I grew up in, and everyone afterwards, I was this little boy soprano, everyone afterwards came up, all the old people said how great, how great it was to hear me sing, how talented I was. So one of my earliest memories is standing in church singing and having my ego stroked by those two things coming together. So ever since then, both God and music have been uh, have been uh, hugely important for me. I hate to be cynical about it, but I think that that's the that's the reason. Um, I grew up Catholic uh, when I was about I was really I was an altar boy, um, and um, I was really into the ritual and the liturgy and the mass. And then my dad got born again when I was about fifteen, and suddenly took the family to the Baptist church down the road, which had carpet and theater lights and a rock band, and people actually sang. You know, no offense, Catholics, but um, you came. Yeah, they, to they don't. They don't sing much, and when they do, you kind of wish they would stop. You came to congregational singing quite, quite late, so <laughs> I, you have some time to catch up. Um, so I, I did the whole uh, evangelical um, mega church thing, though I was in Maine, so the church wasn't very mega, but it was mega by Maine standards. Um, I never really felt like I fit in into like I never was in the praise band. I, I never I didn't really get the music and the kind of worship, but I certainly felt like I should get it. Mm-hmm. Like there was a fair amount of sort of guilt about am I worshiping or feeling the Lord in the evangelical subculture. Um, I you know uh, I was I, I was but I wasn't evangelical and I was doing my at the same time I was learning how to write contemporary classical music, avant-garde music. Um, and um, the twain were really not connected in my mind. There was the, the, the worship music that was happening at church and the stuff that, and the praise band, which I played in when I had to. <laughs> and there was the avant-garde music I was, I was studying. Very little of it was that I knew was sacred at the time. Um, and then when I got into graduate school um, in Philadelphia, I, I had sort of a, a real change religiously, and I, I, I became engaged to a woman who was a... Uh, uh, a mainline Protestant, a progressive Christian. I didn't know they existed. I thought there was just Catholics and, and you know, Protestants, <laughs> evangelicals. So I embraced that. I found theologically and culturally much more at home. I went to churches, of course, where sort of traditional hymns were sung, and I got to catch up on learning those. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and at the same time, I was discovering uh, the work of 20th century composers uh, in the Western classical tradition who were writing powerful sacred works like the uh, French Catholic mystic composer Olivier Messiaen, um, certainly Stravinsky, uh, who was an ortho, uh, Russian Orthodox, and then a lot of Eastern European composers like Georgi Ligeti um, uh, and um, Henrik Goretzky. So these are all these folks who have been sort of become very well known in the latter half of the 20th century for writing symphonies and choral works um, that are really powerful statements of faith in a very highly modernist avant-garde style. Oh, Shushov Penderecki, who if you don't know is an extraordinary composer, um, so I realized there was a way for me to write the kind of avant-garde music I wanted to write. And I felt like I was being called to write and given opportunities to study with my faith, which was of course changing, being more and more open to mystery, uh, and to engage, you know, recognizing that the arts can do more than just convert or help you worship, but can actually function as fa- almost faith formation, mm-hmm. um, uh, resources for the church. Right. Of course, whenever you sing a hymn, you're being powerfully affected by the by the text and by the music. Um, but also when you hear when you go to a concert of Bach in a concert hall and you hear the St. John Passion, of course, you are hearing the gospel brought to life in, in ways that are unfamiliar and challenging. So that's always been my goal. Uh, it's been my goal for 20 years now to try to 
mediate my faith and understand my faith through my artistic practice. And that has led to writing a lot of music that doesn't really, a lot of sacred music that doesn't fit in a worship service is actually intended for the secular concert hall. And so when I write those pieces, they, they are intended to sort of speak to two audiences. You know, one would be your regular concert goer who has, may have no religious, you know, profile, but might know a bit about the Bible and ideas of Christianity. And, you know, they might approach this piece as they might approach any piece of music that sort of interprets a text and helps you make meaning out of what you're given. But then there are the people in the, in the, in the concert hall who may be people of faith, wherever they are in a faith journey, and maybe experiencing, you know, the Bible or other sacred texts in new, totally fresh ways that hopefully are, might be provoke some kind of deeper engagement. Yeah. If that makes sense. So that basically takes you to 2019, where I started to compose this piece we're going to be talking about. Awesome. So some of our audience um, might be really familiar with classical music. They might have that kind of training and things along those lines. Um, but we might have people for whom there's, you know, there's the music you listen to. And then there's this thing called classical music. That's sort of everything from like Bach to Beethoven to Mozart to Stravinsky. Uh, and it's all just like the weird stuff that's like kind of boring and it's on the AM station. Um, so I wonder, could you maybe a little bit more particularly situate maybe a stream or a tradition that you're working out of um, and, and how that kind of fits a little bit in the, in the narrative of, of where new music went in like the 20th century, if that makes some sense. Well, one thing I found, Justin, and, and I think you've actually experienced this with me when we were, you know, working together uh, in, when we were in college, is that quote unquote normal people, people who don't listen to classical music oftentimes are really interested in contemporary modern classical music because it sounds so different. Mm -hmm. The music that I write, the, much of the music that has been written by concert composers in the, in the 20th century does not sound anything like Brahms or Beethoven or Bach. It's not it's it's as different as Jackson Pollock might be from Rembrandt yep. right and some people really dig Jackson Pollock because it's so different and for lots of they dig it for different reasons than you might like Rembrandt um and so you don't have to know Bach and like Bach and Mozart to be attracted to a lot of contemporary or modern classical music it's really a very it's as far as the, as again sort of the the Pollock Rembrandt a pretty good example the other way to talk about that is that you know when abstract artists, whether it's Kandinsky or all the, you know, or Roth, or, or Rothko or uh, Jackson Pollock, they're 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 giving up a central element of the visual art tradition, which is representation of reality. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, the canvas isn't is no longer a, a window you look through to see something. It's it's what it's the thing itself. Right? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know hopefully push your phenomenological button there, but uh, <laughs> uh, but you know so in the same way. You know, uh, what 20th century composers did is they jettisoned what we call tonality, uh, the sense of a key. Um, so what means is that the when I when I look at a piano, uh, I don't think of writing a piece of music that's in a particular key that has chords, the same kind of chords you have in folk music or pop music or Mozart. I think about all the different possible ways I could combine these notes, just like Jackson Pollock looked at the same colors that Rembrandt had, but said, I'm going to combine them in totally new ways. So that's another reason why modern classical music sounds really different. Because it, it doesn't have this, oftentimes have the same sort of chords. Mm -hmm. You can't play it on the guitar. You know? <laughs> like you could play Mozart on guitar, actually. And yep. it, you, you, you know, there are cover versions of Mozart, but you can't do a cover version on guitar for music that doesn't even have chords. Um, so what you'll hear today is, is music that's what we call atonal. So it's, it's music that's not based on these traditional chords. 
Um, at the same time, you'll also hear in this piece a lot of instruments that Mozart didn't have, a lot of percussion instruments, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of ways of combining the instruments that, that Mozart wouldn't have used. So what you're going to hear basically is music that's it's for the same, for basically it's, in, it's, in the, it's within the same tradition of Mozart, but it's as different as paintings by Pollock versus Rembrandt. Yeah. Yeah, and and you mentioned the percussion. I I, I would be loath to to not mention the fact that uh, it's Aaron Trant is the percussionist in the recording. Is that correct? Uh, who was another uh, professor of mine, uh, led the percussion ensemble um, that I participated in, and was, you know, apart from being just a phenomenal percussionist, is is such a profound thinker of music, right? And so, particularly what. I find really inspiring about the way he thought about music, right? Is there's, so in jazz, you know, there's that, that the, the one and only joke about jazz, right? It's, um, uh, it's about the notes you don't hear, right? Like that's the thing everyone says, but there was a sense in which I think he really thinks that way. It's, it's about space with him. Uh, he leaves a lot of, of gaps and openness, which in, as, as somebody who's interested in radical theology and thinking about, about lack and gaps and nothingness, uh, that sort of approach, you know, sort of like you would, you would see when, um, you know, 20th century composers like discovered Zen, for example, and they were suddenly, uh, you know, somebody uh, like John Cage, for, for example, discovers Zen and suddenly wants a lot of space and openness and nothingness. When I uh, talk about music, I gen it finally comes to people's minds that I'm talking about sound that doesn't mean anything, uh, that is not inner, but is just outer. And they say, they, these people who understand that finally say, you mean it's just sounds, thinking that to, for something to just be a sound is to be useless. Whereas I love sounds, just as they are. And I have no need for them to be anything more than what they are. I don't want them to be psychological. I don't want a sound to pretend that it's a bucket, or that it's a president, or that it's in love with another sound. <laughs> I just want it to be a sound. Uh, and I'm, I'm not so stupid either. There was a, a German philosopher who's very well known, Immanuel Kant, and he said there are two things that um, don't have to mean anything. One is music and the other is laughter. <laughs> don't have to mean anything that is in order to give us very deep pleasure. You know that, don't you? The sound experience, which I prefer to all others, is the experience of silence. And the silence, almost everywhere in the world now, is, is uh, traffic. If you listen to Beethoven or to Mozart, you see that they're always the same. But if you listen to traffic, you see it's always different. 
you you notice that in in his kind of work as well, which I think is 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 really profound. So I was quite excited to see his his name there. I remember um, in one of the percussion ensemble, he really wanted to get this idea to us in one of our our lessons. So he had us all. Um, get together and uh, and we each had to pick one instrument. Uh, I don't remember. I had a cymbal or something like that. Uh, and that's all we had. Uh, and he said, we're going to play a piece and the piece is going to be five minutes long. Uh, and each of you get one breath's length of, of sound you get to make. Um, and so, you know, we're a bunch of dumb 19 year olds. Uh, so, you know, a minute and a half in, we've all played um, <laughs> and we're done. And then we just sat in silence for three and a half minutes waiting for the clock to tick away, but it, it opened up a new way of listening that I thought was really quite profound. Yeah, unfortunately, some of the best, my favorite parts of any of my pieces are the, are the silent moments. Mm-hmm. Moments where I just stop, the music stops and there's a moment for everything to settle. Um, the sounds, is, it's, it's the background, it's the soil in which the music grows, um, but it also just like soil has a richness to itself, which is, which is actually changed. Um, you know, in a sense, blessed by the music and that it has sort of a holy set up our nature. It's musical silence doesn't even have to be silent. Mm-hmm. It actually really, you know this, you, it, you know, you, you hear like in Beethoven's fifth, the first movement, blah, 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 blah. there's a famous moment right near the end where the orchestra has been super stormy, super loud, timpani and, and, and trumpets and, 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 and everyone's playing. And then it just, the music just stops like, like the eye of a hurricane and there's silence. Well, it's not, there's not silence. There's just a solo oboe holding this one note mm-hmm. and it plays a solo for like 30 seconds. It's like break your heart, but. It might, that might as well be silence, right? It's a, it, you don't just hear the oboe, you hear this, the lack of music. You hear the space enveloping and engulfing you, you know? And that's, that's an example of how um, when we listen to music and especially contemporary composers like John Cage or uh, Takamitsu, a Japanese composer, will really use silence for dramatic effect. Um, and actually that happens in my piece as well. Yeah. And, and when I think about it, like, it feels like there's a lot of silence, but I feel like, you know, if you actually took your piece and, you know, looked at the waveforms, for example, there's probably almost no moment where it's actually silent, right? Because what you have is you have these, these sort of rattling symbols, or you have, you know, a lot of it's vocals, I notice, where the music will drop out and you'll have just like a held vocal, vocal note or something along those lines, um, which I, I think is... Uh, you know, you invoked phenomenology a minute ago, right? There, there's we we have the experience, like the sort of phenomenological experience of silence, despite the fact that, objectively speaking, there is still sound there. Yeah, musical silence doesn't have to be. They call it acousmatic. You know, basically, it's acousmatic space where you hear, even though there may be, you know, you're sitting in a concert hall and the orchestra stops and there's a dramatic pause. You know, people's you know people are shuffling papers and and the the HVAC system is operating. You you might hear that but you're not listening to it yep. so when we listen to music when we're entering enter, entering that acousmatic space that allows you to use a kind of acousmatic silence that's not literal silence but actually and you'll love this you know is more silent than is possible mm-hmm. because as john cage learned when he went into a a, a silent space uh, in a lab at harvard in the 40s where there is no such thing as actual silence Mm-hmm. Like you, when you, if you're in a silent room, you're here. You can hear your, um, your your heartbeat. You can hear your your um, nervous system buzzing. 
But in music, when you create silence in music in this acousmatic space, there is actual perceptual silence. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be, you can dig into that phenomenologically too. But um, yeah, and that's, and again, the dramatic moments in most of my pieces is a moment of space. Excellent. Um, yeah, I, I, I could follow this rabbit hole forever, yeah. but we would never actually get to your piece. So let's talk a little bit about your specific um, project. Um, so it's it's called, uh, as I mentioned earlier, The Binding of Isaac According to the Eloist, um, which is a reference to the, I think, the documentary hypothesis. I wonder, for the sake of the audience, if you could just talk a little bit about what that hypothesis is and, and how it informed the way that you came to this piece. Well, I'm certainly not a biblical scholar, uh, but, you know, sometimes you run into somewhat exciting nerdy concepts and they impact the rest of your life. Uh, And, you know, the, you know, documentary hypothesis is basically a way of looking at the Hebrew scriptures that says that what we, what we have of at least the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books is really seems like it was redacted or put together by a number of different writers who are given uh, letters, like one of them is J, because uh, this writer uses the word Yah, you know, what we translate as Yahweh for for God, versus another one called E, or the E source, or the E writer scholar, because that person would use the word Elohim, which is another uh, more ancient name for for God. So if you look, read, were to read the old, you know, the parts of the you know, Book of Genesis in in the original. Hebrew, you'd see sometimes God is Yahweh and sometimes God is Elohim. And you can um, even see this in the English, right? So if if it's all caps Lord, that usually means it's Yahweh's being translated. Whereas if it says God, that's usually Elohim that's being translated. 100%. Right, exactly. The Lord with the little, oh, yeah, exactly. Um, so, but if you don't know that, uh, you don't know they're actually different. And it, it's complicated. I mean, Elohim is a, is a complicated word that seems to come from much older uh, Near Eastern religious traditions. It's plural in sort of certain way, as far as I understand, you know, it's complicated. Uh, but what matters for me is that is in this story of the, of, the, of, the, of the sacrifice of Isaac, which is pretty well known. I'm assuming that your listeners know the basic outline of the story. Yeah, um, God, God says, sacrifice your son. Abraham says, do I have to? And he says, yes. They go to the top of the mountain. Um, Isaac says, uh, where's the sacrifice? He says, God will provide one. Uh, he's ready to kill his own son. And then lo and behold, they look over and there's a ram uh, caught in a tree and an angel says, don't kill your son. Uh, and they bring the ram over, they sacrifice the son. And God says, wow, you are willing to murder your child. That is a bunch of faith you've got. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's a weird sort of disturbing story. <laughs> Absolutely. And and so obviously I, I've wrestled with it uh, and I've certainly heard enough sermons in certain churches where Abraham is simply held up as a great, he's one of the great fathers of faith. God said it and he, he did it. Well, he was just about to do it. He would have done it. And then for God, and then of course, later, later in the Bible, in the new Testament, he's held up in the book of Hebrews. I believe of course is he's held up as a paragon of faith. Um, I don't know if being willing to kill your son just because God said it is actual faith. I mean, are you sure it was God, right? Uh, it doesn't seem very consistent. Anyway, we, we start to go down that rabbit hole. So I'm not the only person to have struggled with. Kierkegaard, of course, famously <laughs> tried to deal with this, and you know more about that than in fear and trembling than I do. Um, but basically, we're faced with this impossible choice we have to make, and, and Abraham made this one. Um, you know, I have done a lot of, I tend to work with 
Old Testament texts and stories, because when I want to try to figure out something about my faith, I, you know, I do it through the lens of my artistic practice. So that, well, I'm going to, if I'm ever going to figure out this story, it's going to be through writing a piece about it. <laughs> so I said, what I do. And what happened is that basically I, this, um, I came upon the scholarship of this provocative, you know, reconstructionist rabbi scholar in New York city in Semayora. And he using the documentary hypothesis and looking at the text, he basically came up with sort of a contemporary version of what is actually a very, very old um, theory about this text, which is that really it's made up of um, it, well, the, the story we have in the Bible today is actually a later version of the original story. Uh, essentially, he, the, the hypothesis is that in the original version of the story, uh, Abraham just does it and that's it. Uh, and that later scholars and Hebrew writers were, you know, added this angel jumping in and saying, no, they, they added that later to reflect an evolving understanding of, of who the God of the Israelites was, essentially reflecting changes in cultural mores that basically said that human sacrifice is no longer acceptable. Yep. And many world traditions and religions did have human sacrifice and they've all left it behind, uh, including the, the ancient uh, Hebrews. So it's not surprising that scholars said, well, this old story doesn't reflect how we understand God now. Um, and the evidence for that is that basically there are the, if you were to look at just the version of the story in which the, the Elohist wrote, which is the, you know, using the word Elohim for God, that's basically the story you get. When the angel steps in and says, no, that's, that he uses the, 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 the name Yahweh for God. Mm -hmm. So it's basically seems pretty clear. Like basically the Yahweh came in later and, and stuck in this little bit where he said, no, 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 but he gives himself away because he uses the, a different name for God. And it's, like, it's 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 quite literally like like uh, uh, Deus Ex Machina, like literally God steps in to solve a problematic point in the plot. <laughs> Perfect, exactly. And it get, but again, gives it away by using the you know forgot to change. It's like when you write a cover letter to the wrong school, you, know, <laughs> you gave away that uh, <laughs> you know uh oh, right to the trashy um for your cover letter. But you know I like that because the Hebrew scriptures are full of redactions and, and they do contradict themselves and they reflect changing understandings. And that's what the Christian faith is without being supersessionist. It's another, you know, even the book of Hebrews, it's an attempt to people or for people in the first century AD to try to reconcile uh, the, you know, what they learned from this powerful, powerfully um, influential rabbi with what they knew from their parents about, about the religion. And, you know, the, the Christian church developed and said, Oh, it's totally different. <laughs> it's actually like, but you know, so the idea of, of adapting your, your faith and your understanding of scripture and even the scriptures themselves to, to help you understand God in light of a contemporary, uh, a, a contemporary society, that's not some radical thing. Like it's a huge part of the Judeo Christian tradition. Um, it's more I, as a progressive Christian, the progressives right in there, right? I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, I'm not an evangelical. I don't think that the word of God is frozen in the, in the literal text. You know, I think the word of God lives through the, the church and lives through a living Christ, etc. You know, and I'm, I'm willing to look at the Bible and say, I need to interpret it through the whole tradition. Uh, I guess I'm kind of Wesleyan in that way. But having said all of that, um, I decided what would happen, though, I started to think about how I, I understood this story, right? No problem. Actually, you know, the first story, they got it wrong, right? Later on, when the Hebrews were more enlightened, they changed it, you know? Uh, and that's what I realized. That's not, that doesn't solve anything because Abraham was still willing to do it. 
And he still held up as a paragon of faith. So I said, okay, what if I set to music the original version as a thought, a, a, a thought experiment? So basically what I did is I, instead of setting to music, the, the version of the story we have in the Bible, which is, which includes the part where the angel says, no, I just decided to set the Elohim text, right? Which is basically all the parts where uh, the old, the, the theorized first, or first version where God says, do it. Abraham does it. And then he's rewarded. So that's why the piece is called the binding of Isaac or the sacrifice of Isaac, according to the Elohim. And the reason why I did this is I wanted to provoke conversation about the ultimately problematic part of the story, which yeah. is that Abraham is a court is understood is called a paragon of faith for being willing to sacrifice his son. And, and this is what I think is, is most surprising about this, right? You have this traditional story where, you know, he goes up and, and he's going to sacrifice his son and the angel comes down and, you know, happy ending and everyone goes home and, and has a big hug or whatever. Um, and then you have your version that that ends in just like tragedy and, and human sacrifice and, and all of that. And yet in a certain way, um, the ethical question is exactly the same between the two versions, right? When you When you take away the angel stepping in and stopping him, it doesn't actually affect the real all i think in some ways all it does is it sharpens the ethical question because if we're going to call him a paragon of faith for being willing to sacrifice his son then we should be willing to call him a paragon of faith for sacrificing his son and that's quite a paradox <laughs> it sure is and so when i had the chance to this piece was a little bit orphaned because of the pandemic and it was supposed to be premiered actually at a national conference of the american academy of religion which is going to be in boston uh but because of and so that was going to the audience of that for that event was going to be, you know, hundreds of scholars. And, but that conference ended up going online and this wouldn't work online. So I had the opportunity to instead punt on the premiere. And then I essentially got the, ended up getting um, the premiere funded and produced by an organization at Gordon College, which is a, a Christian college north of Boston. Um, and it was essentially it was going to be premiered in a church service as like a cantata. Cantata is kind of like a classical piece of music that's presented oftentimes in lieu of a sermon to demonstrate something. Um, so I went from thinking about my audience being scholars, and I thought we'd have a nice panel discussion afterwards about the documentary hypothesis, and there, I'm sure there would be some ethicists there, you know, and 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 scholars and and, and philosophy students, and et cetera. But then what I realized it was going to be take place in a church service, I actually changed the piece a lot because I realized this is going to contribute to people's like, people listening to this are mostly going to be there ready to worship God. And this piece is not going to help uh, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, might, might make it worse even. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, but the goal is not, you know, just, you know, I, don't, I certainly don't think being challenged about your view of faith is, is a negative thing at all. I mean, that's all that Jesus did is basically, <laughs> that's all he did, you know. Um, however, what I decided to do, also, this was going to happen at a pretty conservative Anglican church. So I also knew that the approach to the Bible was going to be more evangelical. And I thought that maybe the biggest issue in this piece was not going to be, well, the biggest issue was going to be that I was monkeying around with the Bible, hmm. you know? So, but what I really decided to do is just sort of go for the jugular and say, well, my, my concern with this piece is not really just that we might've misunderstood God. But the issue of this piece really is that it represents fundamentally 
the idea of the blood atonement that's so important in some strands of, certainly in, in, in Jewish theology, but certainly in some strands of Christian theology. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, blood atonement meaning that we have sinned, we, we need, there needs to be some kind of, God requires blood for us to be, our sin to be washed away. Mm-hmm. And so his son, the ultimate sacrifice, shed his blood. God killed his own son, or allowed it to happen. Is there really a difference, right? <laughs> and as a result, thank God we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that's one important strand of Christian soteriology, but it's certainly not the only understanding of salvation. In the, in the New Testament, you could argue it's, only, it's pretty small in a lot of ways. But certainly other versions of salvation through and, you know, through the, over the last 2,000 years, the church have been very powerful. Um, I knew that this church was really, this particular church community was really into blood atonement. Uh, they were really excited that it was to be followed by the Eucharist so that they could have, they could pour out the blood right on the, set, on the, on the altar. And I was like, oh, baby, here we go. <laughs> so I said, okay, the problem with blood atonement, what's the problem with that? It's the idea is that it's, it's violence as salvific. It's that you can get, you get what you want, which is eternal life or salvation through violence. And the Christian church has really bought into that for like the last 2000 years, hashtag crusades, uh-huh. hashtag pogroms. And frankly, this story has, this This is one of the many stories in the Old Testament that has led to pogroms against Jews historically. Uh-huh. So it's really, really problematic. So I decided what's the real point I'm trying to make by presenting this piece in a conservative church service. And it's basically that violence there's a real, I have a real problem with, with salvific, salvific, salvific violence and blood atonement. So what I decide to do is, as you will hear in this piece, in the very moment where I, Abraham is about to do it, because in my version, he does, the music sort of stops and there's a sort of dreamlike moment. And in that moment, suddenly, um, the congregation is invited to actually join into the performance in an interactive way. And what they're asked to do is to sing a hymn. And the hymn that I asked them to sing is Amazing Grace. Which is that? Which is that hymn that you sing at the altar call, mm-hmm. right? That saved a wretch like me. Uh, I once was lost. It's that evangelical hymn. It's the thing that people sing when they come to Jesus in these traditions. And while dramatically, this sacrifice, this this murder is happening, time freezes, and we are we are asked to sing this hymn, which is very personally powerful for us about our salvation. And I'm asking people to think as they sing that, as they actually, I mean, they sing that, you remember that time you were at the altar. You remember all those moments in your old back, you know, at, at your church when you sang that. It's, that's a view of salvation that's very personal. It's very about me and God, and I believe that now I'm going to heaven, right? At the same time, those little boys get murdered. And there's 2,000 years of salvific violence as a result. And frankly, the idea is to create this cognitive distance and give you the space where you're asked to really wrestle with certain ideas about salvation and how they relate to bigger ethical issues and faith. 
and, and political issues, right? Like I couldn't help but think of like the way in which Amazing Grace is not just a religious um is it just a piece of religious music? I think in the American context, right, is a deeply political piece of music, right? It is. It is sort of like, you know, it's the sub national anthem in some ways, um, and right, it has deep roots to you know what has been called by many scholars the original sin of the American church, which is slavery, right? It is. It. I. I think it's really profound that in this moment of of blood violence, you used basically a slaver hymn, right? Um, yeah, John Newton, helped, you know, was a slave owner when he wrote it, you know, um, and you can't forget that. Um, he eventually did change, you know, change his views, but when he wrote that song, he was a slave owner. Um, so yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so um, while the congregation is singing Amazing Grace, what basically happens is the orchestra sort of starts to, the music that they're singing along to starts to sort of become uh, blurry and it starts to become more dissonant and it gets louder and louder. It becomes a sort of tidal wave that eventually engulfs all the singing mm -hmm. and ends up with this very um, uh, surreal and absurd moment where the orchestra actually plays a lot of children's instruments. They play a bicycle horn and a ratchet and a, um, and the idea is, I, again, it's through sort of use of absurdity to try to, to just um, uh, highlight, if in case you didn't get it while you were singing the song and the orchestra swallowed you, to highlight the impossibility of understanding the song. Uh, uh, sorry, the impossibility of really fundamentally understanding this event in, 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 in the Bible. And here is where I think I take from Kierkegaard, right? Where it ultimately you sort of have to let go of the ability to understand it in a certain way. Now you're left with making that choice. That's sort of like, that's the climactic moment of this piece. And that's how I made this piece, not just a concert work that encourages folks to think about these issues, but actually a, a, a ritualistic or a liturgical work that tries to comment within the context of worship on elements of worship itself. And, and that really stood out to me, right? So when you were doing your biographical thing at the beginning, you were talking about how mostly you've written music for the concert hall and not worship music, but it does seem like this piece is starting to straddle that line more than some of your earlier pieces. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. And the problem with like, I mean, um, yes, hundred percent. Uh, and I've written very, very little music for, you know, choral anthems or anything like that. I'm just, I'm just not interested, um, for a variety of reasons, but, um, also my, you know, as a, as a, as a diehard modernist, I am, I'm wired to, to deconstruct and to view the, to view, view my job as artist, as, you know, the person who, as, you know, Shlosky said, makes a stone stony, you know, like, uh, basically we, what we do, we, we try to 
to shake people and wake them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Adorno would, would I hope me, you know, I'm a big Adorno fan. The idea is that, you know, the modern arts, if they're not operating in a critical role in society, if they're not um, operating what I would say in a, what is sort of a prophetic vein, right? The idea of holding, speaking truth to power, then, then we're just part of the, part of the system. Um, so when I, you know, as a modernist composer, all the pieces I do are trying to do that. So when I try to write a piece for the use of a church service, it's going to do that. It's going to deconstruct. It's going to interrogate. And it's going to force, a, hopefully, a radical re- reconsideration of, of the topic at hand, mm-hmm. um, which is what I was trying to do. Yeah. So it, I wonder if we could stick with this moment, right? Cause it is, it's the moment, like it's the moment where Isaac gets killed. So you talk to it's amazing grace. And then the, the harmony sort of kind of shifts from, as you said, from being basically like a traditional kind of chorale, like you could recognize in any, uh, in any uh, mainline Protestant church uh, to suddenly it is this sort of atonal and the dissonance keeps ramping and the volume is ramping and you have all, all of this, that, that wave, as you described, that overtakes uh, the singing, which I think is really profound, right? You said you wanted to provoke dissonance in the mind of the listener. And, and in a way, that sort of the dissonance of the piece seems to match the, the psychological or, or spiritual dissonance there. Um, but you also talked a little bit about the, um, the instrumentation. Uh, and so this is something that I noticed um, – throughout this piece was this use of all of these, these toys. So you have a toy drum and a lot of slide whistle um, and something that might be one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a score, um, which is the instruction kazoo reverently, (laughs) which I had to like take a picture of and send, send to the co-host Matt um, because the idea of, of doing reverent kazoo um, is, is uh, amazing. Um, And so, what strike what comes to mind here is again this sort of dissonance right you have children's toys at the precise moment where a child is being killed right is that was that the childness of the toys is that partially to invoke that that kind of loss of childhood loss of innocence something along those lines absolutely in fact the children's instruments are used throughout the piece uh several times during the piece uh there's a actually the the um some of the musicians are asked to sort of process around the church and they play almost like a little march and they actually play well um they they play tiny little cymbals and toy toy drums and that kind of stuff and sleigh bells <laughs> exactly yeah and so and that's to demonstrate this long journey that happens in the text um but while it's happening while abraham and isaac are walking they keep walking it takes many days to get to mount moriah whatever it is um what I was thinking is that, I mean, here, here's a, a, a father who's with every step knows he's getting closer, literally every step he's getting closer to murdering his child. And this, and it's, it, it's, no one knows how old Isaac is supposed to be in this story. There are theories from like age five to like age 30. Um, but when, I mean, I have a kid who's 20, 22, by the way, Justin, you remember my, uh, my daughter, Alex? <laughs> that's, that's, that, uh, that, that says too much about how old I am now. <laughs> they're, always, they're always your child, right? And, and yep. so it doesn't matter if I, Isaac was 30. I mean, Abraham was, what, 99 or something? Um, you know, or older now because he had the kid, right? Um, those childhood instruments are at every step meant to, meant to illustrate the fact that he is, this is fundamentally his child. But there's another, there's another reason why I wanted to use the children's instruments is that's because they are, um, 
they sound bad. Uh, they are not created in order to sound to, they're not created, they're created as toys, not as musical instruments. So they, they sound tinny, they, they're too small, they don't resonate. And essentially what I'm asking them to do is to play, to, to play music that they're not designed to play. Essentially it's working against their abilities. So you highlight the limitations of this of their of the of those instruments. Like when you give a toy drum something to play that should be for a classical snare drum, it sounds bad, but you it allows you to recognize the inherent limitations of those instruments. And there's a there's a there's a dissonance there. There's a sense that that's another way I was trying to symbolize the fact that you know we're trying to understand the story with our puny human intellects and these ancient. 3000 year old text. And there's just no way we can, like we do not have the apparatus, no matter what Kierkegaard gave us or anybody else to really understand the absurdity of this story. And so I wanted to demonstrate the impossibility of coming to terms with that story. There's just, there's an, by highlighting the, the, the limitations of the musical sounds. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, that makes total sense. And it, and there's, you know, I think a way in which it reinforces dissonance in a certain way too, right? Because the when you have these toy instruments, they're they're never like in tune, right? Like um, that's that's never an option. And so there's like a an unsettling character, I think, to these sorts of instruments. Um, again, you know, and this is is not like entirely new, right? Uh, so um, you know, to go back to Cage, for example, Cage wrote a suite of pieces for a toy piano, I believe, right? I mean, he did, I mean, John Cage certainly had, you know, wrote pieces of music. He wrote a piece called Living Room Music where he, he doesn't specify the instruments, but they have to be things, objects found in your house. Yep. Like spatula and stuff like that. I want to perform that piece. And you really have to just have find spatulas and stuff that, that, that might make the right kind of sound, you know. Um, and Cage's point is that anything can make music, anything can be music. But it does require you when you hear that piece to, to well, it makes you re, it may, of course makes you reconsider what music ought to sound like, and then of course that leads you to issues of who defines what music is, what structures of power, what you know, who's determining it up front. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like this story, which has been, you know, um, interpreted for twenty five hundred years by Jewish inscription, sorry, Jewish and Christian scholars, and, and many, many, many more folks. Um, but at the end of the day, again, it's just, you, you can't grasp, you, you fundamentally can't grasp it, I think. Uh, it's horror is basically beyond what we can understand. And the idea of using these toy instruments is to demonstrate that you, again, we, we, we can only do so much and then we reach the limitations of our abilities. So I wonder if we could fast forward to the end of the piece. Um, there, I think pretty appropriately, right? There's no grand climax to this piece. Like there are climactic moments in the sense of volume and things like that. But right, if you're waiting for, you know, the big five one that you would expect from, you know, a classical piece, you know, bum, bum, um, you don't get anything along those lines. Uh, and instead, it's a piece that, that sort of um, 
fizzles in a way that I find really interesting. So specifically the fact that the, um, the harmony and the melody drops out entirely uh, and it ends with just sort of jangling cymbals. They're, they are, are cymbals that all of the musicians are playing, but also it's um, the, the audience also has tiny cymbals that they have as well. And it's just this sort of ringing cacophony of, of cymbals. Um, what, uh, what exactly is happening there? Like, what did, what did you understand to be happening in that moment? Um, well, so one thing that's interesting about, interesting about the text is if you, if you set the text according to the Eloist, basically what happens is that, um, the, the, the narrator says, and, and then Abraham raised his hand to slit his throat. And then it's actually a lacuna in the text. The, the fact is that it doesn't actually say it. Okay. Um, all you do, if you, if you were to just read the Eloist version, as you say, then the Lord spoke to Abraham and said, now I know you are my, you are my um, uh, uh, servant, right? So the text itself, even in the original version, doesn't actually say he slit his throat. It's, it's implied, it's understood, but it's interesting. Let's deconstruct that, right? Um, however, it's really anticlimactic because, you know, basically after God just basically says, all right, uh, all right, um, Abraham, now I know you're my, you're my servant. And then the next thing you know is Abraham turns and then goes down the mountain and then lived, lived with, lived with, you know, lived in, um, in Beersheba. Right. And one of the reasons why this scholar, Tim Ayora, the sort of the light bulb moment for him was that if you look at this text, Abraham, Isaac's just not mentioned uh, in the second half of the text. Now he shows up in the next chapter, but on the walk, you know, the way down the mountain, uh, there's no mention of, of them. It's just Abraham goes down. So the, that's another sort of support that a, a Isaac's actually not with him. Mm-hmm. So there is an anticlimactic element here that the text doesn't say, and then he slid it in blood on everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't say what they do with the body. He's just gone. He's just gone from the text. You know, uh, he's the silence that you have to pay attention to. And if you don't pay attention, you're going to miss the point. Um, so I, and, and then the next thing you know is Abraham's just living with in a different place with a bunch of his other sons and that's it. You know, it's a simple thing. Fiat, it's done. You know, Abraham just did it. But of course, so what I saw, I wanted to, at the end of this piece, at the end of this piece, um, everyone drops out and then the audience actually, the audience has tiny little bells and they're basically asked to just basically ring these bells, uh, while, uh, one of the musicians who's a flute player who sort of symbolizes Isaac in the piece walks to the middle of the concert hall and, and shakes bells as well. And the idea here is that we're we're not we're we're memorializing Isaac. We are, as a congregation are saying no. The, the 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 life of this child needs to be remembered. He shouldn't disappear from the text. He shouldn't just be used by God and Abraham to prove a point. And at the same time, those of us who have been who are part of this system that views violence as salvific, we need to remember that every time we we catch ourselves thinking about a salvation through blood. We are, um, we are, we are, uh, you know, expunging Isaac from the story. We are, we are basically trying to look the other way from the, the horrible violence of the story, whether or not he did it. So this is the moment at the end of the piece for the congregation to sort of memorialize Isaac. And of course, bells have been used in all cultures to signify death but also new life, like at a um, church service, right? after, sorry, after a wedding, right? After a wedding, you ring the bells, mm-hmm. right? So the, these tiny little bells create this deafening cacophony 
where we get the opportunity to, as Isaac stands there, to remember the victim. It, I can't help but, you know, think of like our contemporary political climate, right? When you think of something like Uvalde, right? There's this way in which there, there is a necessary erasure of the victims uh, for this sort of politicized blood atonement, right? There's, there's a narrative that says a certain amount of innocent blood needs to be spilled in order for us to have quote unquote freedom, right? This becomes mm-hmm. the narrative, whether it's the, the blood of, of children domestically, whether it's the blood of Iraqi civilians, whether it's the, you know, kind of insert Yemenis that we're supplying, you know, drones and missiles to blow up, whether it's Somalis, um, that for every problem, there is, there's a logic that says for every problem, the solution is going to be more violence. Um, at least I, I, that's how I sense our culture. 100%. And at the very least, uh, there, there probably will be some, but that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, collateral damage, like you say, mm-hmm. you know, which is not any better. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a little, maybe a little bit better, uh, but it's not. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, you know, you may think, okay, you know, you, you're a theologian, a philosopher, and, and I'm, a, I'm an artist, and, and, and this is, you know, um, a piece of music that's trying to interrogate these issues. But, you know, I mean, I presented this piece at a really wealthy church on the North Shore of Boston with a lot of political donors and a lot of folks who probably have positions of authority and power in state government, who knows, national government. And as we all know, the, <clears throat> the religious Christians are doing a lot of damage in society today and politics comes from faith. And if you're formed by a church that preaches blood atonement and it teaches, teaches that blood is an acceptable, if not necessary way to accomplish what you want. That's a deep thing you've heard since you were a child. And then when you grow up and end up being like a Senator, even if you don't go to church, I mean, that's so deep inside you. And that's why theology and the ways we understand the Bible are really relevant to, to what to politics, and maybe someone who heard this piece has the ear of a rep, of, of a senator. It's not crazy to think that, at least because of the wealthy church where I presented this piece. I mean, probably not, but you know, this was a way for me, my tiny little way to like flip the script, challenge the narrative, and maybe it'll have some practical impact. I don't know. Yeah. So I wonder if we could keep on this uh, piece and talk a little bit about the response. So uh, mm. I, I'm curious, uh, what was the response in the room um, when uh, it, with that initial initial group when you did the premiere? Well, I was really quite concerned because I was told by the, by the professor who, who had set this up that the priest, the Anglican, Anglican priest, priest would be on the panel afterwards. And he has what how do you say? He oftentimes has issues with his temper mm-hmm. and is a very uh, outspoken uh, person. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, he is going to hate this and he is going to stand up and like yell at me, you know? And I mean, I can handle it. So I was legitimately like, I didn't know what was going to happen in the, in the, <laughs> in the panel, especially I've been told that the, that the priest is highly opinionated and sometimes yells at people. <laughs> But if you actually watch the video, he's singing along to Amazing Grace in the front. He's ringing the bells. And, and he really contributed very uh, robustly to the conversation. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, afterwards, I mean, the, uh, the audience, the congregation, many of them stuck around for this panel. And uh, it was a really great conversation. Like no one was offended by, that I, by the fact that I monkey with the text. Yep. No one was offended by the fact that I made them sing Amazing Grace and then the music swallowed them up. You know, like people actually were willing to consider the issues that I raised. Um, and I have comments solicited by the producers of the event that testify to that. Mm-hmm. People saying, I never thought about the story in this way before. This is a really necessary comment, you know? And I just was really excited by that. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know if I, I think if I, maybe I had it performed at another church, it might be different. I'm a more conservative church. Um, but I don't know. I was very, very encouraged. Mm-hmm. I wonder, uh, have you had interactions with um, like the Jewish community? And has there been, what has been the response out of, out of that community to this piece? Well, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I've been on, I, I have been on a panel. I think you might've even been there online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, through a church in England uh, where we have the scholar Zemayora join us. Now this guy, he, he's an atheist, okay? He's that liberal as a, as a, as a Jew. Um, so for him, it doesn't matter that like, you know, if Isaac dies, you know, then there's no Jacob and then you kind of have an issue <laughs> as, as a Jew, okay? Um, but he's also a rabbi of a, of, a, of, a, of a humanistic Jewish community and he didn't have a problem. Uh, I have done, you know, inter, interfaith events, um, actually with a, I did it at a college in, in Florida. And yeah, the Jewish students definitely re- reacted to this issue. The idea is like, well, I can't even conceive of Isaac not, existing right abraham and isaac and jacob and then i tell then when they're concerned i tell them well i'm not the semayora and i are not the first people in fact there are midrash or midrashim whatever there are uh, jewish commentaries on this story that propose this possibility going back to the middle ages mm-hmm. there's a long tradition of jewish scholars trying to wrestle with this story by proposing the idea um, so I'm able to basically punt on that and say, I, I, I'm not just a Christian who's monkeying with your tradition. I'm not just a Christian who's, who's monkeying with your tradition and pissing you off. Like your brethren and forefathers have, were, have been doing this for like 800 years. <laughs> and I, I can sidestep it there. Yeah. And, and what my, where my mind goes is, right, is the, the question of the descendants of Abraham is like when you start thinking multi-religiously is really complex, right? Because if you go to the Islamic tradition, for example, like it, Isaac doesn't like Isaac doesn't matter. It's Ishmael who becomes the son, who becomes the center of the covenantal promise rather than Isaac. Um, though that's maybe slightly complicated because it's also Ishmael who gets brought to the top of the mountain, but that's, that's another story. Um, but I think there's like, there is, there's a long tradition of rethinking what it means to be a descendant of Abraham, obviously here. Well, in fact, I, one of the Muslim students in this workshop said that there is a, there is a tradition in Islam saying that Ishmael was the, was the son. Hmm. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's complicated. I mean, obviously if, if I don't have a problem recognizing that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob might be literary figures, um, there's no archeological evidence for the Exodus. You know, which is often an even bigger problem for, for Jewish folks, because that's really their big story. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a progressive Christian. I, I, this is not a huge deal for me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what I was excited about when we when I presented this this composition, which is that in a in a in a conservative evangelical church, that they didn't forgive me for using this word, they didn't fetishize the literal the texts to such a degree as to miss the point. Mm-hmm. And I just I describe this as a as a thought experiment. It's basically a sermon. You can take it or leave it. You know, it's when the when the pastor gets up and says, "I'm going to tell you a story." You know, and this is to help you to think about this in a different way. I'm not claiming this is the truth. I'm holding it up as a thought experiment. And and in that way, you know, you invoked uh, fear and trembling a couple times with Kierkegaard. And I think it's noteworthy, right, that that text opens with him rewriting the story like three times. So he has one where he goes to the top of the mountain and then pretends to be insane so that <laughs> Isaac won't blame God. He has one where he just decides he can't do it and sort of depressingly walks back down the mountain and, and things like that. So there, this idea of of creating thought experiments in order to rethink this narrative, right, has has these sort of deep philosophical roots in Kierkegaard. Yeah, it's true. Um, I think you shared with me a whole of your syllabi from your class on <laughs> included your fear and trembling in this story. I don't want to forget to mention just that this is really f- funny. And I, I may even told you this, but maybe your listeners don't know. When I was reading um, the, the Midrash tradition about, there's a famous book called The Last Trial, which is a collection of by Jewish, Jewish scholar from the mid 20th century, a collection of commentaries on this story. And what I did not understand is that this has been a real, this story was a real problem for Jewish scholars because, well, so the one thing, the one thing we haven't mentioned here, sorry, which is, has been on my mind, but is, is very obvious enough that I haven't even mentioned it, which is that Christians have oftentimes thought of Jesus as a second Isaac, yep. right? as another son of God that God sacrifices, right? Though there's a difference, right? Uh, so God actually, for the Christians, Jesus is a second Isaac, who God actually does sacrifice and then raise from the dead. So it's a riff, it's the remix of Abraham and Isaac, but it's better than the, the original because God actually does it and God brings him back. And the Jews, many of the Jews, the Jewish scholars were like, they couldn't brook that but just for pride. Like, look, Isaac is ours. So there are a couple of really amazing commentaries or, or story riffs on this story in the last trial, including the idea, some one of them where, here's what the scholar said. Okay, here's what actually happened. Abraham kills Isaac, fine. God brings him back. Mm-hmm. So at this point, you're keeping track at home. Jews won, Christians won, okay? You've each got a son who is killed by God, brought back. God then has Abraham kill Isaac a second time Bring him back a second time. Keep a track at home. It's Jews two, Christians one, game over. <laughs> and that's, I mean, and once I read that story, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not even proposing that. Mm-hmm. Like, I can do whatever I want if that's what, what the Jewish folk came up with. Mm-hmm. You know, so at that point, it's, it's a license to do really whatever thought experiment you want. And, and you see this in contemporary. So, you know, in the that class that I've taught on this story, because um, I built an ethics class all around this, as I shared with you, um, right? I, I look at the way that this gets brought into um, the uh, 20th century. So you could think of um, uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved, for example, is ultimately 
you know, something of a retelling of this story in a different key, right? So it's a a woman who has a daughter um, and she's an escaped slave and there are slave catchers coming and she's hmm. trapped in a shed and she hears them knocking on the door uh, and she makes the choice, I'm going to slit the throat of my infant rather than allow her to grow up in slavery. Hmm. Uh, in this, and it's, you know, it. I think it it resonates not only with this story, but I think particularly with your your version of the story, right? Because it is this moment of um, of of loss, a moment of death, right? And you know, we see it. We see it even in pop culture. If you know Highway sixty one revisited by Bob Dylan, it starts with God said to Abraham, "Kill me a son." <laughs> Abe said, "Man, you must be putting me on." And God said, "No." Abe said, "What?" And God say, "You can do what you want, Abe, but." Next time you see me coming, you better run. And then Abe said, where do you want this killing done? And that's when God says, out on Highway 61, right? On the outskirts of town, like in the nether regions, in the place for the forgotten, for the dispossessed, right? For the, for the people who are outside of society. And, um, you know, you, you and I, I are sitting here, you know, I, I, like a lot of white people, I haven't been touched by a lot of death in my life, but um, that's a real privilege because, you know, many people, you know, communities of color are touched by physical death vastly more than white folks are. And, you know, this, this story about, like you mentioned, beloved, like the story about a, a, a child dying, right. Is not something I have to worry about when my kids drive, you know, driving a car hmm. <laughs> late at night, uh, you know, and so it, we, you can't forget that this, this, I think what makes this story, you know, relevant there are many reasons why it's relevant, but um, the very idea that 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 God would 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 allow this to happen it is it, it's it's relevant to, to politics today, whether Uvalde or Black Lives Matter, um, and it's relevant to Christians who have to confront this every time we do the Eucharist, yeah. or we hear about God allowing His Son to die, and we have if we don't wrestle with it, we have to. And this is where, you know, the fact that this is the the a podcast associated with the radical theology seminar, I think, becomes quite interesting, right? Because if if you think of a, a moment ago, you were talking about that that sort of typological connection, right? That you know, Jesus is the is the next Isaac, the second Isaac, but better, whatever. Um, you know, if if it is a story where Isaac is not saved, then I think there's a way of thinking about the crucifixion as a story in which, you know, the Christ is not saved, right? Mm -hmm. If we follow that typological connection there. And and I think that opens up possibilities for for thinking about, you know, themes that are, are really common within the radical theological sphere. Uh, themes like, you know, the death of God as this idea of rather than the crucifixion being reversed, you know, somebody like Thomas Altizer, he wants to say, no, 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 no. That's the moment. God just keeps going deeper and deeper um, that, uh, that God descends into the flesh, into the world. And what does that look like for someone like him? It looks like politics of liberation, mm. that politics of liberation come because there's no longer something outside that can save us, right? That we have to do that work to build communities of love and trust and forgiveness and transformation uh, ourselves. Cause there is, there is no outside that can come in and rescue. There's no angel that's going to pop up and say, hold the knife. We have to find ways to build society where the knife isn't being used that way. And to be a little Marxist about it, uh, if you're still thinking about God as the one who's going to save you, if you're still thinking about the God who's there when you know who God who gives you what you need when you need it, that, that's that's an that's an idol at best. 
Uh, and you probably have just been, the wool's been put over your eyes and society, you know, capitalist system has just given you this to keep you, keep you, keep you happy, keep you in line, keep you from real, you know, radical, um, uh, you know, uh, revolution of, of thinking and of the world. I mean, I'm probably getting that wrong, uh, Justin, but this is my, my understanding of that. And I, I'm with you on that. Um, yeah. And, and that's great that, oh, no, sorry, go for it. Well, we also can't forget the idea of after the Holocaust, um, the many, many Jew, Jews basically, we, we cannot, how can there be God after the Holocaust? Yeah. Yeah. How can, you know, there's the, the famous line, what is it? Um, uh, it's impossible to write poetry after the Holocaust, I think. Um, yeah. All right. So. We are approaching an hour, and this is going to be a longer podcast anyway, because I'm going to throw the entire recording. We'll have excerpts sprinkled throughout, but I'm going to throw the complete recording at the end. Um, so uh, with uh, sort of anti-capitalist revolution, I can't think of a better way to, uh, <laughs> to close out this discussion. Um, so, uh, but before we go, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit uh, for folks who might be interested in uh, in your work and hearing more about your work and maybe... Uh, if you could talk a little bit about where they could find that and also a bit about uh, Deus uh, Ex Musica. Sure. I should mention on, on the idea of anti-capitalist, there was one person who didn't get paid from this production, and that was me. <laughs> My labor was unpaid. I did not get any royalties. I conducted the piece. Um, and uh, everyone else on the stage got paid, and so did the clergy. Uh, but, you know, I, uh, mm -hmm. you know I'm, I'm hardcore, man. You know, I didn't even what Would I have accepted that capitalist blood money? Yes, I would have. But I know there was no one paying me. Uh, instead, I gave it to the musicians fully who are exploited by the system anyway. So here we go. Um, yes, so uh, my website, delvincase.com, it's D-E-L-V-Y-N. That has um, a lots of links to recordings and videos of my my these sacred pieces. Um, and I have thought of my, my work actually as sort of radical sacred composition because much of my work is trying to interrogate um, these long, these, these meta narratives, right. And challenge them. So you're going to see a lot of, um, there are little commentaries sort of on each piece and to describe the ways that I'm trying to sort of raise certain questions or issues with biblical texts or prayers or thoughts within the Christian tradition. Um, so, and there are a bunch of equally weird kind of avant-garde sacred pieces on there that you can watch and listen to. Um, I, I started an organization called Deus Ex Musica that, tries to um, use modern classical sacred music as a, as, a, as a means for ecumenical faith formation. So what that basically means is we put on concerts in churches where we bring a bunch of modern composers together to write sacred music. And then we use that as a springboard for discussion, You almost always in an ecumenical space and oftentimes an interface space. So we gather you know, Christian and Jewish composers and, 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 and audience members together around a live performance and we hear this piece and we talk about the ways that these sacred pieces are make us dive more deeply into scripture or challenge our notions about, about the Bible or faith. And um, you, you can actually, you know, uh, watch videos of these events. You can, you can listen to those pieces that we used uh, on our website and that's, you can access that through, through my website. Um, um, and right now I'm working on a, uh, I also do a lot of work on popular music. So I'm working on a book right now, which is about, um, the, the interesting phenomenon of the appearances of Jesus in secular pop music. Hmm. And my interest there is exploring how they found about, found about 600 pop songs in all genres 
in which Jesus appears over the last 50 years. And my interest is exploring what, what's a Christology of that, mm-hmm. of that phenomenon. How is the Jesus of, of secular music? Who is that Jesus? And how does that help us understand what it means to be living in a secular age? But also, how does it minister to Christians who are looking for a way to understand Jesus in a way that is really relevant? Um, and what I have found, spoiler alert, is that there are so many incredibly powerful songs that help us, oftentimes written by atheists, that nonetheless function prophetically and give us extraordinary power to understand our own tradition. Uh, so anyway, that, I have a whole website. That's delvincase.com slash Jesus. Uh, and there are playlists there and all this stuff about that project. Awesome. Uh, we'll have to bring you back when that when that book is published and uh, and uh, get, you know, 300 copy strikes on one podcast episode. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, if you uh, are listening to this on the podcast um, and at this moment, uh, we're going to switch over and you've heard some excerpts throughout. And now you're going to hear the entire piece uh, runs about 20 minutes. So uh, enjoy this performance of The Binding of Isaac, according to the Eloist. All right, thanks a lot.